And everybody said, what a glorious morning of worship. And I am so glad that you're here today. And I know the Lord has a word for all of us. This morning, just, a, just one other announcement I want to share with you. Upcoming is a Discovering Church membership. We'll be teaching that in our home. There was on the slides. It's in the bulletin. But I just want to say a word as pastor. If you're thinking about Bethel as your church home or church family, maybe you'd like to know what we believe, where we're going, our vision for our church. If you're interested uh, about knowing more about our church family and becoming a part, then October the 6th, we're going to have that in our home. And so there's information about it. You can call the church office, and I would love for you to come. And uh, it's going to be a great time. And uh, we teach, and it's usually followed by a meal. And Christy uh, prepares that, and it's always delicious. So uh, I, am a, I am a living testimony of her good cooking. All right. So I invite you to come and join us on that day. Now, before we get into the word this morning, I want you to say to the person on your right and on your left, I am glad you're here. Would you welcome them? All right. It's good to be in God's house together, amen? Welcoming one another. Now, <laughs> we're going to begin, in, we're, we're uh, resuming a series of messages that I began last year in 2018, and uh, Brother Jay is going to help me. We're going to preach uh, and pick up a, um, uh, in the book of Acts. And so today, we're going to start resuming this series of messages, and we're titling it The Ministry of the Resurrected Christ. The Gospel according to Luke tells us about the ministry of Jesus Christ on the earth. But then in Acts, uh, beginning with chapter number one, it gives us the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And one, uh, more than one Bible scholar said the book of Acts is about the ministry of the resurrected Jesus. And so how Jesus worked in and through God's people and through his early church, and uh, it's the ministry continued on by our Lord and Savior in his resurrection. And so today, that's uh, the, where we're going to begin, and we're going to be in Acts chapter number 9. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along, look with me, to the book of Acts, and beginning with chapter number 9. Do you have your copy of God's Word? I hope that you do, and that you'll follow along with us today. We'll have it on the screens, and uh, we're going to read it together, a long passage of Scripture. And so I want you to listen closely. This is about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And um, as you know, Saul of Tarsus later would be renamed as Paul, and he becomes the Apostle Paul. So let's read about his conversion, beginning with Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse number 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly 
a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. Heavenly Father, today, I pray that as we look into this great passage of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts about our own faith in you. And Father, I pray that today we would learn some of the great truths about your saving work in us through this great testimony of how you saved Saul. Father, today I ask that we would set aside the distractions that would want to Take our attention off of you. Lord, some of us have distractions from work or life or kids or family or money or relationships or something that happened today or yesterday. And Father, I pray that we would set that aside and today, in this moment, focus on you and what you have to say to us. Now, Father, help us to obey you and trust in you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. This week I had an opportunity to preach all week long in um, uh, a revival service, a group of churches from a, a Salem South Association near Mount Vernon, Illinois, had a series of outdoor uh, meetings, uh, revival, and so they asked me to come and preach all week long. So all week I preached outdoors in a revival service in uh, Mount Vernon, and so uh, through Friday night. My throat is about shot. But in that service, a glorious thing happened in that a woman came forward and was sharing with me that she had grown up in the church. Her husband's a deacon in the church, and she'd even taught Sunday school in church, but she realized that she did not know the Lord Jesus and had given her heart and life to Jesus Christ as her Lord and Master. Here's this woman in her 60s publicly declaring in recent days that she is now a follower of Jesus Christ and has come to know him personally. Can you imagine the sense of courage and humility that she had to have in making that bold confession of faith? Let me ask you a question this morning. When did you come to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? We could have a testimony meeting right here, couldn't we? About when, when we came to know the Lord and what led you to Christ and what were the circumstances in your life that were taking place when you had that moment that you came and trusted Christ as your Savior? How did you learn about him? Who told you about him? When did you come to trust him? Was it a sudden event or was it over time that you came to realize that you are now a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you come to trust in him? And that's the real question. Are you trusting today Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? This is the most important question for your life. Today is a story of one of the most important men in the life of the early church and the story of his conversion. And there's some great important truths we can learn of his testimony. Luke considers this of, salient, of great salience and, and, and importance. He, he, he three times gives us a description of, of Saul's conversion and salvation. He talks about his life before. What was Saul's life like? And then about how he came to trust him. And then how his life would be different after trusting him. And how about your life? How about your story? Today, let's look at Saul's story together. But think about our own life and where we're at in our own personal life. First of all, he was a persecutor of the early church. Saul of Tarsus, just a young man, was there the day that they drugged Stephen. Stephen was one of the great followers of the Lord, an early disciple, a proclaimer of the gospel, a debater, an apologist, an evangelist. And he was filled with the Spirit of God, and persecution came against him. And Stephen preached powerfully, one of the great sermons contained of all of Scripture. And he preaches from the Old Testament and points to the Lord Jesus. But the Jewish religious leaders turned on him as he proclaimed Christ Jesus. And toward the end of his message, they clasped 
their hands over their ears. They gnashed their teeth at him. They drug him outside of the city, and they judged him as worthy of death. In mob action, they murdered, Je- murdered Stephen by picking up stones and stoning him, throwing rocks and pelting him with rocks and boulders, breaking limbs, knocking him unconscious, and killing him. While they're killing Stephen, they laid their garments at a young man, a Jewish scholar, young man, a, a zealot devoted to Israel and to the law of God, and that young man's name is Saul. Saul was giving hearty agreement and approval to the murder that he watched of Stephen. And Stephen, in the midst of, while they're murdering him, cries out, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. And Stephen himself said, Father, don't hold this against him. Saul watches him die. And Saul never forgot about it. Are you all with me this morning? Persecution grew out, grew, uh, was grown, grew out of that whole experience and that hatred of this sect of Judaism that were followers of Jesus Christ. They became known as men and women of the way. They still went to temple. They met house to house like we talked about a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. And persecution breaks out against the church. And it's so severe that believers are dispersed into Judea, away from Jerusalem, and Samaria, Asia Minor, and even into Syria. And Saul was destroying the church, the Bible tells us. He went house to house along with others, dragging out men and women away from their homes. Can you imagine what that was like? that they would break into somebody's house and there would be a dad and a young father maybe who was a follower of Jesus Christ and they arrest him and put him in bonds and they drag him away while his children are crying and they take him and throw him in a prison, abuse him or murder him. They would do the same to women. Sometimes they would break in a house and both the man and the woman were followers of Christ, arrest them both, take them both into captivity and to imprisonment. They lost jobs. They lost their standing. They were persecuted. They were jeered. They were made fun of. And so there, were, there was a great outbreak of persecution against believers. So believers left Jerusalem and dispersed, went to other places to live. And Saul was trying to destroy the church. He was threatening and imprisoning and murdering, all in the name of religion. This is what Saul of Tarsus was doing. So he hears that there's a large group, a contingent of those of the way that's in Damascus. Now, Damascus, Syria, had a synagogue there, a large population of Jews that lived there, and there were many followers of Christ. So he goes to the high priest, and he says to the high priest, I would like to have letters to the synagogue in Damascus giving me authority to imprison anybody who I find that's a follower of Jesus Christ. And a high priest gives him orders and letters and a, a guard to go, and, and, and they make their way to Damascus. Now, Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. 
If you were going to Damascus, you would go down the bloody way to the Jordan Rift Valley. Then you would make your way northward along the Jordan River. You would skirt east of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee, and you would go along the Golan Heights. You would head directly north to Caesarea Philippi, and there you would run into a highway called the Via de Maris, Maris the, the way of the sea, and this highway would take you into Damascus. It would take you at least two weeks of walking in order to go from Jerusalem. It was a long trek, and as they're nearing the city of Damascus, Saul has his plan. He has his guard and his contingents, those with him, and he's planning on bringing many um, un, in chains back to Jerusalem to be tried and to be killed. But just outside of the city of Damascus, there's a blinding light that comes and knocks Saul to his knees, and he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, the other men heard the noise. They were speechless about what had happened, but they didn't distinguish the sound of the words. And Paul was blind from the light, and he couldn't see. He had to be led by the hand into Damascus. And there he was in a house on Straight Street, the house of Judas, and for three days he will not eat or drink anything, but is fasting and seeking God. In the midst of that, God is at work, and there's Ananias, who is a follower of Jesus, this Jewish man, devout in the scriptures and law and the law and love for the Lord Jesus. And in a vision, the Lord speaks to him, and he says to Ananias, he says, I want you to go over to Straight Street, and I want you to find Judas's house, who lives on Straight Street. And there's a man there that is praying, and he's from Sarsa. From, from Tarsus in Cilicia, and his name is Saul, and he's praying, and I want you to find him, and he's already had a vision, and Saul has had a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come and place his hands on him, and he'll receive his sight. Well, Ananias says, Lord, I know about this guy. He's a bad dude. We've all heard about him. He's done much to harm us. And he's come here with letters to arrest us and take us back to Jerusalem. And he said, listen, you go because I'm going to do a work in his life. And he's going to become a chosen instrument of mine. And he is going to speak my name. And he's going to preach my gospel. And he's going to do it with Gentiles and kings and even to the sons of Israel. And I'll show him how much he will suffer for my name. Well, he went to the house. He found Judas's house, knocked on the door. He opened the door. He says, is Saul here? He said, he's, yeah, he's back in the room praying. He's blind. Won't eat a thing. He said, God sent me to him. He goes to the house. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me to you. He placed his hands on him. He received 
sight. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias said, get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, confess your sins, and call on his name. And he regained strength, and Saul came to know the Lord. His life was changed forever and ever. Amen? Isn't that a glorious story? I want us to look at it together, find some truths from it today. Number one, first truth, is this persecution of the people of God is persecution of Jesus. Are you all awake this morning? You have your coffee? Can you listen to me closely? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest me? Saul was persecuting the church, and the voice out of heaven was, when you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not stand up against it. Jesus identifies with his church, with his people. Now listen close. When you turn and persecute the church of Jesus Christ, you are against Jesus himself. When you degrade your church, you're degrading the name of Christ. When you oppose the work of the church, you're opposing Christ. When you're negative and critical of church, then if you're not careful, you're negative and critical about Jesus Christ. I'd be very careful about your attitude concerning his church. The church is not perfect, but the church is the body of Jesus Christ. Number two, the Lord initiates our salvation not based on our merits, but on his grace. Amen. Amen. You are saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Was Saul seeking Jesus? No, Saul wasn't seeking Jesus. Saul was sought by Jesus. Look with me to the book of Galatians, chapter number one. You have your Bible. Look to me the book of Galatians, chapter number one. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, beginning with verse number 13. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, listen, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, now listen, who set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me how? Through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Paul said, you know what? It wasn't me that found Christ. Christ found me. God took the initiative in my life. 
John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Folks, you can't find Jesus on your own. You need the work of God in your life to find him. It's all his grace, not your doing. Amen? Number three, the Lord prepares the hearts of men to receive the gospel. Notice in, in uh, uh, verse number 11, how the Lord is, he says, the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. So Ananias, the Lord says, I'm preparing, I'm preparing Saul's heart to receive the gospel. So you go, Ananias, and you preach the gospel to him. I've prepared his heart. How did he prepare him? He confronted him. He was confronted by Christ. He was convicted by, of sin, and he was prepared for the gospel. The Lord brought a crisis of belief into his life. The Lord Jesus confronts him, and there's a sorrow, I think, inside of him. Listen, without godly sorrow, there's no repentance. And God had broken Saul, and Saul now is ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation without repentance. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And in order for us to repent from our sin and hard-heartedness, it takes the work of Almighty God to open and to prepare our hearts. Number four, the Lord orchestrates the de details of our salvation. The Lord is the one orchestrating these details for our salvation. Verse number 12 says, He's seen in a vision named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. God has already orchestrated the details. And here's Saul. He's blind. He's not eating for three days. He's seeking God in prayer. He's saying, what can all of this mean? I was against Jesus, against the way. And now I heard a voice saying, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. What have I done? I've murdered people. If he really is God in the flesh, uh, what kind of life, what kind of a murder have I committed? And the Lord was preparing. And then God, in word of comfort, said, listen to me, Saul. There's coming a man, and his name's Ananias. You listen to him, and he'll tell you what you're to do. God's preparing every detail for our salvation. Paul, Paul was, Paul was going to be changed forever and ever. God works out the details of your salvation. He's sovereignly at work in us. Children of Israel dwelt for 400 plus years in captivity in Egypt. But God did not forget about them. Amen? Did he work out every detail he did? The children of Israel in bondage, they cry out to God, and God raises up a little baby boy named Moses, and God in his sovereignty pr pr protects Moses, and God in his sovereignty 
has the mother make a little ark of bulrushes and pitches it inside with tar. And God in his sovereignty, puts, they put the baby into that little ark, that little boat, and floated on the Nile. And God in his sovereignty saw that Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the Nile at just that moment. And God in his sovereignty had the baby to cry. And God in his sovereignty had the, the Pharaoh's daughter say, go find the baby. And they, God in his sovereignty, the servants brought it and said, it's one of the Hebrew boys. And she said, I'll take him. God in his sovereignty broke Pharaoh's daughter to say, I, I'll take him as my own. And Moses grows up in his house. Moses, God, God so loved, so blessed the family. He let, he let Moses be nursed by his own mother. Grow up at her knee been trained in the house of Pharaoh in all of the wisdom of Egypt and literature and writing. He becomes the author of the Pentateuch. God in his sovereignty, Moses is an adult man, commits murder, and he's a, he's a fugitive away from Egypt. But God has not forgotten. And God calls him at the mountain of God and calls him to ministry, sends him back to Egypt saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And God in his sovereignty breaks the Egyptians and then through the Passover death of the angel and the blood of the lamb, the children of Israel spared and they're brought out of Egypt and blessed with bounty and he opens up the Red Sea and he saves them and forms his own nation. Let me tell you what, just like God carried out all those details, God has worked in you to save you from your sin. He's working all of those details. He orchestrates his salvation. Number five, the Lord saves those who we think are beyond help. Amen. Could somebody say amen? You know what? Well, we get to think of some people just beyond being saved. Saul was notorious. Ananias said, I've heard about him. He's hateful. He's hurtful. He has a nefarious agenda against us. He's a bad man. He's not for us, God. He's a bad man. Never would have Ananias believed that the next person that he gets to be involved in baptizing would be Saul of Tarsus. Why do you think some people are beyond being saved? Why do we sometimes think that people, God can't save somebody? I submit to you because we think their sin condition is worse than ours. We think God deals with people like we deal with people. We think God's salvation is somehow partially earned. We think that God's agenda is like our agenda. But let me tell you something. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And God is carrying out his plan. And let me tell you something. Your sin, your sin caused you to be dead in your trespasses and sin. And you are not good in yourself. And you have no way to save yourself. 
and everybody who's ever been saved, no matter how notorious, is saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. So there's no boasting in heaven and there's no boasting at the foot of the cross because every one of us are saved. Come humbly before Jesus Christ and bow our knees and say, without your shed blood, I'm lost and I have no hope except in you. Number six, the Lord's saving act is for a ministry purpose. Notice in verse number 15, he said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's been elected by me, chosen by me, set apart, ordained by me for a purpose. And that purpose is to be used mightily for God. Notice what he says. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and I'll show him how much he will suffer for my name. Folks, you've been saved not by any good works. You've been saved for good works. You've been saved to serve, and you've got a ministry calling. Listen close. Every one of us in this room have a ministry calling. Tell your neighbor, God's called you to ministry. Uh, that wasn't convincing. Tell them, God's called you to ministry. He has. Listen, he's gifted you. He's not only saved you, he's gifted you. Folks, when you receive Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has come to dwell in your life. And he's given you gifts. He's given you ministry influence. He's given you relationships. So my question to you is, are you serving him? Are you serving others? Are you plugged in and using your gifts in the life of the church? Are you are you, there's a place for every one of you to serve the Lord. Not only a place, an expectation that every one of us will be serving him. God didn't save you so you can just sit in the pew and criticize the worship service. That's what spectators do. Now, I enjoy watching a good ball game. Sort of. I can't watch much more of this Cardinal Cub thing. It's about to kill me. It was four hours of endurance. Up and down, back and forth. Who's going to win this thing? Christy said, okay, Tim. You are not allowed to say the word stupid anymore during this ball game. Because when you walk three or four batters in a row, the word stupid just wants to roll off my tongue. You know what I'm saying? And I, so I said, okay. So we started using the word dumb. This is dumb. <laughs> she said, same thing. So my nerves are shot watching this thing. And I can criticize, and I can be negative, and I can say, why did he put him in, and why are they letting him pitch it? Oh, no. And I'm just going on. Because I'm a fan. I'm a spectator, not a player. 
And in consumer churches where no one serves but just a few, we become like fans. We either cheer when we like it or we boo when we don't. Or we're critical. God in heaven saved you. God in heaven washed you clean with his son's blood. God in heaven gave you his spirit. God in heaven has given you gifts. God in heaven has put you in a body on a team, the body of Christ. And God in heaven has said, play your role. Get involved. You're not a fan. You're not a spectator. You're a player. This is what God has said to us. Amen? You're his chosen instrument. God has a plan for you. Number eight, serving Jesus wholeheartedly will bring joy and suffering in your life. Notice in verse 16, he says he will have sorrow. He'll have suffering. But he will have joy. In the book of Philippians, Paul is the author of that great book. And that book is filled with calls to rejoice and rejoicing. It's written from a prison cell where he suffered. The Philippians have seen him suffer. The Philippians remember how he and Silas were in prison at midnight in stocks, backs ripped open from beating, and how they were singing and praising God. They were suffering, but joy. Notice with me in chapter number 3 of Philippians, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me. It's a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of false circumcision. For we're the true circumcision, the worship, in the Spirit of God, and the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now listen close. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I form far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to a law, a Pharisee, and as to a zeal, a persecutor of the church. But as to righteousness was in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I count as lost rubbish for the sake of Christ. And I count all of these things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Wow, that is glorious. 
My friends, God's called you. And when you serve him, the greatest joy will be in your life. You may suffer, but in that suffering, there will be joy. Number nine, prejudice and animosity are washed away in the cross of Jesus. Amen? Somebody say amen right there. Verse number 17, I love this story. Ananias comes into the house of Judas. He says, where's Saul? I'm looking for him. I got an appointment with him. He says he's back in the back room praying. Hasn't eaten for three days. When he walks in, he said, Brother Saul. <laughs> all that animosity, all that fear, all that hatred for Saul is all washed away. Even though I know you've mistreated us, you are now my brother because of the grace of God. That's what God's grace does. That God's grace, remo God's grace removes that prejudice, that animosity, that hatred, that coddled hurt feeling. Because he is now our brother in Jesus. Number 10. The gospel calls for a personal response. Notice in verse number 17 and 18, chapter 9, Ananias departed, entered the house, laid his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, and he sent me to you that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, he regained his sight, now listen, and he got up and was baptized. In chapter number 22, when Paul recounts this conversion story, in verse number 16, he gives us more detail of what Ananias said to him. And in chapter 22, verse 16, Paul said, this is what Ananias said, get up, Saul, be baptized, wash away your sins calling on his name. Whoever, Paul wrote later, calls on the name of the Lord, whoever is meaning, meaning me, meaning me, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wow, that's for all of us. Isn't that good news? Have you? Have you repented of sin? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Have you called on his name? Have you been baptized declaring your faith in Christ? Listen close. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Come to Jesus. This altar is open for you today to come and know Christ as your Savior. If you don't know him, I would love to pray with you. There's others here who would love to talk with you. And today, you can be saved and have eternal life. Stand with me. Father in heaven, 
have your way in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.